Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Wes Craven, who died at the age of 76 on August 30th, 2015, was considered one of the masters of cinema's horror genre. He was best known for two series of films, The Nightmare on Elm Street Films and The Scream series, which also served as an academic deconstruction of the genre. Starting life as a humanities professor, Wes Craven moved over to film, first as a sound editor and then film editor, before turning to directing with The Last House on the Left. Among his non-genre films were Music of the Heart with Meryl Streep and a short film in the acclaimed anthology Parish Jatem. Richard Lupoff and I had a chance to interview Wes Craven on October 13, 1999, during the tour for his one and only novel, Fountain Society. When you started out, were you familiar with pulp genres, or did you just kind of fall into it and find yourself being a horror director? That's how it happened. I, I was in New York. Uh, after being a messenger, I worked up my way up through editing rooms, and I was working on a small, tiny budget feature as a, an editor and um, got to be friends with the producer, guy my own age, Sean Cunningham, who later did Friday the 13th, and Sean got an order from uh, the people that he had made this other film for, the one I had worked on, for a scary movie for their theater chain. Uh, These were a group, Hallmark Releasing, in Boston area that uh, owned 120-some theaters, and they would commission their own little movies. And uh, they told Sean, we want something scary. Sean said, look, you want to be a director someday? Why don't you go write something scary, and then you uh, you can direct it, and then you can cut it on my Steam Deck. And we have a budget of 40000 I said, okay, let's go. So I went off to Long Island and uh, wrote Last House on the Left. And really, I just said, okay, what, what's scary? Okay, escape convicts. And then I had always been struck by the kind of purity of the story of Virgin Spring. And I just took that and updated it into the 20th century and, uh, you know, made a, a contemporary tale, morality tale. What happened is people lined up around the block. It causes all sorts of furor. People had heart attacks and riots in theaters. People tried to get into the projection booth to destroy the prints. And it became sort of, you know, famous. And Sam Arkoff heard about it and bought it for American International. And suddenly it was national. So, you know, this quiet college professor suddenly having made a film that he thought nobody nobody that he knew would ever see suddenly was having to face all of his friends having made this, uh, you know, horrendous, violent film. But after that, it was very much like Sean and I both worked on projects in scripts that uh, were about many different subjects, and nobody wanted to give us the time of the day. But they always said, well, if you guys ever want to do something scary, we'll we'll gladly finance that. So Sean went off and made Friday the 13th, and I went off and did Hills of Eyes. 20 years later, how do you feel about you know the, the quiet college professor who kind of lucked into his first film? How do you feel about being a trademark name for horror how, do, how does that affect you how do you you know you think about that i think it just adds to my sense of irony about life in general you know like <laughs> you can never predict where you're going to end up or what you're going to become known for at a certain point i just sort of went with it i said okay um 
there's a hundred guys in this town that would kill to make a film of any sort. Here you have a chance to make films. So you're steeped in Greek mythology. You have all sorts of uh, knowledge of 20th century novels from Johns Hopkins, you know, master's degree. Just pour your best into it and make them modern uh, mythology as much as you can. So I just started uh, mining the Greek myths and, uh, you know, thinking of uh, people's descents into hell and reemergences and things from the Odyssey, and it made a lot of sense. I mean, the 20th century is one of the bloodiest centuries ever. We know that. We've learned how to kill people by the millions in a mechanized, you know, assembly line sort of way. Why not reflect some of that darkness and, and think about it and deal with it in a film, no matter how popular it is, you know? I mean, think of some of the paintings of Goya, uh, you know, Cronus devouring his children. I mean, it's like it's out of a, a horrendous comic book or something, but it depicts something profoundly ancient and real. So uh, just let your hair down and, and uh, be in a genre where the audience is very sharp. They don't put up with uh, bull. If it isn't if it isn't ahead of them, they're going to walk out. And uh, do it the best you can. Looking back on all those other films, is there any single film that stands out as the one you're most proud of, either for drawing out the mythology or for just scaring the heck out of the audience? Well, I like Nightmare on Elm Street very much. I mean, it was based, believe it or not, on a series of newspaper articles about kids dying in the middle of nightmares. And it became, to me, a really interesting kind of paradigm to express how youth can inherit the sins of the fathers, so to speak. I mean, Freddy Krueger was somebody that the parents of these kids had murdered um, because he was a child molester, and they went around the law and murdered him. And the result was, rather than getting rid of him, they came back into the dreams of their children. And I thought that was a great image for so much of uh, the ills of the 20th century of the previous generations not having kind of, you know, taken care of business in a proper way and, and left the kids with the problems. So um, that one, I think, uh, made a lot of sense, and it worked on a psychic level of level, levels of consciousness. It really was about staying awake in a conscious way um, and going into a whole different world of imagination into the dream world in order to survive. So I found that interesting, and then it was fun to do the 10th year anniversary version where I sort of deconstructed the whole thing and went behind the scenes with the people who had actually made the film and I think in some ways anticipated the Scream convention of deconstruction. So those two films together, I think, make a very interesting dyad. I'd like to ask you a little about casting direction. The reason I'm asking this is because if we look back over the Nightmare on Elm Street movies, Scream, I think you did Last House on the Left, and all these other films, what we find in the works of Wes Craven, aside from the genre, horror, and the success and all that, is a remarkable talent for picking out people who will one day become major talents. What role did you have in picking out these people? Because it's phenomenal. You look at Johnny Depp, Sharon Stone. Bruce Willis, the first first thing he did when he came to Los Angeles uh, was a Twilight Zone. I directed Chatterday, based on a Harlan Ellison story. Um, Mitch Pileggi, who is now very big in the X-Files. Uh, yeah, a lot of uh, very, very talented actors and actresses. Uh, even people in Scream have since gone on to uh, much bigger roles. I guess, if nothing else, it's just a dumb realization uh, that uh, if you don't have the actor, it doesn't matter how well the role is written, you won't get it on screen. So you must get that intelligence and, and charisma, too. I mean, uh, Johnny Depp was down to three actors, and my daughter was uh, sitting in on some of the casting sessions reading the part of Nancy in Nightmare on Elm Street. 
And I said, well, this guy here, he's a, like a surfer and he's kind of cute. And this guy over here is like really uh, handsome. And uh, then there's this Johnny Depp character who was a, just in town for a few months and was playing in a band. My daughter said, Dad, Johnny Depp, duh. I was like, I, what do you mean? He said, well, look, he's beautiful. So he just had, you know, something that girls responded to. He had this amazing charisma. So sometimes you have to listen to people around you. You know, you just keep all your antenna up. What about Sharon Stone? Well, Sharon Stone had just, I think she had done Stardust Memories as a beautiful girl in a subway, you know, just a glimpse. She came onto a film that I did with uh, Ernest Borgnine called Deadly Blessing. I think it was 1979. You know, she was with an acting coach. She was nervous. She was a little bit overweight. She, uh, uh, you know, was just a babe in the woods in a sense. But interestingly enough, by the time she got from the airport to, uh, well, she'll kill me if she ever, uh, to the uh, set, she was in love with the first assistant director and had, like, incredibly special treatment throughout the entire film and then uh, dumped him, like, two, <laughs> two weeks after the movie. So I guess I shouldn't use Babe in the Woods with her. But she was, you know, she was, she was sweet to work with. I'll tell you another great Sharon Stone story, if you have time. We were dealing with tarantulas in that film, and I, I have kind of a fear of spiders, too, and she sort of sensed that. And there was a scene where she had to have a tarantula on her chest after she falls down a flight of stairs. She says, well, um, you put it on you, right? And so... I said, oh, sure, yeah, of course. So she watches. I put the tarantula, or the trainer puts the tarantula on my arm, and it was strange because once the bug was on my arm, it was like very peaceful, very slow moving. I said, oh, that's that's cool. And she asked the trainer, she says, well, do they bite? Uh, is it poisonous? And he says, well, they don't bite unless the only time is if you were to squash it down or something like that. Then its fangs might go into you, but it's just like a bee sting. And she says, well, can't you remove the fangs or something? And he says, well, we can clip them with actually with like toenail clippers because they're keratin just like uh, fingernails but they don't grow back so the spider will slowly starve to death Sharon sort of looked off for a moment and said clip him <laughs> how did he get Robert Englund well originally the, the part was written for a, an old man and uh, we were casting uh, you know 70 year olds and looking at them and the interesting thing was men that age have reached a certain gentleness um, and they, they couldn't be ferocious and uh, really couldn't get into the evil side of Freddie. And Robert Englund came in and, and sort of on a flyer said, I, I can do this. And, and he had this enthusiasm for it, which is very important for a villain. I mean, if you have a good demon or devil, he has to enjoy what he's doing. A lot of actors will pull back from that and try to do it campily so that they can never be accused of actually being evil themselves. And as a filmmaker, I know when you're doing evil, you have to let the demons out of the box, even though you know that people are going to be looking at you a year from now saying, I can't imagine such thoughts are in your mind, as if such things don't exist in the world, you know. So Robert just had that enthusiasm, and um, I knew we were going to be putting him in this sort of mask of a scarred face anyway, so um, I went for the uh, for the vigor and the fact that he had classical training, he was a Shakespearean actor, and you know, had good chops. It seems that with Fountain Society and with your new film with starring Meryl Streep, you're moving in different directions, in new directions, away from the genre work that you've been doing for most of your career. Is this a new Wes Craven we're seeing, or just the old Wes Craven finally fighting out? Yeah, it's sort of a, a I suppose, a Wes Craven that a lot of people haven't seen, which was always the frustration. You know, typical interview, you walk into a room and say, oh my God, I didn't realize... Uh, and I would say that I wasn't Charles Manson. <laughs> and so, you know, I always felt 
it's great. It's fun doing movies for basically a young audience. I, I suppose my core audience is 15 to 25. And many of those over the years have grown up into adults that remember my films and like them. But on the other hand, it's always uh, frustrating to hear, especially women say, well, I just can't watch your kind of film. I understand they're interesting, but I just can't watch them. They give me nightmares or whatever. And, you know, fighting censorship and everything that goes along with being a genre filmmaker, including, I think, a, a general perception that they're kind of the stepchildren of American cinema. It felt really important and necessary and uh, potentially fun to do a couple things outside the genre. And I'd had this idea for this book uh, for a long, long time, almost 20 years. One of my hobbies is kind of reading science, and uh, I felt like the technology was catching up with the concept of the book, which was cloning and transplantation of a brain. So um, I proposed it to Simon & Schuster, and they, they sort of went along with it a little nervously, and then uh, a week after they sent me my contract, uh, Dolly was announced. And I got this call from them, sort of this giddy call, saying, oh, I guess you weren't so crazy after all. <laughs> when you move from, from the traditional Wes Craven kind of uh, a, not only screen but screamer movie into a very, very serious, mature film, like uh, I believe the working title was, was 50 Violins. Is that going to be the release title? No, the film is called Music of the Heart. And it's actually coming out uh, the 29th of this month, October, so it's, it's very soon going to be in theaters. Do you see this as, well, from here on out, I'm doing movies of uh, music of the heart type, or do you see that as a departure and we're going to go back and we're going to have Scream 4 or Nightmare 11? I just wrapped uh, Scream 3, but uh, it is the last of the trilogy. Nobody will believe us until the next year comes out and there's not enough Scream 4, but that was contractually. I think I do have one more genre film in my contract with Miramax Dimension, but... You know, let's face it, I was taking a flyer here, both with writing a book and uh, with doing a film with Meryl Streep. I, I got this extraordinary opportunity from the Weinstein brothers to do a non-genre film. I got an extraordinary amount of trust from Simon Schuster that I could deliver a novel that was readable. They didn't have anything to read. Uh, I pitched it on an idea. So, you know, I figured I had these sort of two chances and uh, took a run at it. And I, I was fully aware that I could could have completely fallen on my face. But, you know, the thing is, and I know from the past when I, I was a teacher and I wanted to make movies and just quit my job teaching and went to New York and the only job I was able to get was as a messenger. Well, I had no idea whether I was ever going to be able to get a job making a film. You just have to take those chances sometimes or you, you'll kick yourself when you're an old man and say, well, yeah, well, I could have tried it, but I was just, I was too worried. So uh, I've done it and if nothing else, I can say to myself, uh, you know, self, you've written a book and it's been published by a major publisher and you've written, you've, you've directed a, no, uh, a, a film with uh, Meryl Streep. I, I think it looks, knock on wood, that uh, they're both going to be well received and uh, the, the audience scores on Music of the Heart have been the highest Miramax has had with the exception of uh, Goodwill Hunting. And it's not a film that's, you know, especially slanted towards a big popular audience, but audiences of all ages have loved it. So uh, if I get a chance to direct more films of that nature, I would certainly jump at it. And if I never did another horror movie, I wouldn't be crying because I've done, I think, some very, very good ones and wouldn't mind moving on at all. In the past, you've worked with, I mean, you've worked with some top talent, but most of it has been young talent on the rise rather than somebody who someone who may be the greatest film actress of all time. How was it working with her? Did you give her more freedom than, say, you gave Nev Campbell? 
Well, you know, Neve Campbell is really uh, a very, very intelligent woman, and so it's, it's really quite similar. The interesting thing with Merrill is that you're more talking to, if nothing else, a chronological peer. Obviously, she has such an incredible you know, history of achievement and so forth. In, in some ways, you just are in awe of that, but you can't really, as a director, cop to that all the time. I mean, basically, I found her extremely approachable, very intelligent, extremely rigorous on herself. I mean, she had this enormous task of uh, going from never having picked up a violin to playing the part of a teacher that, at the culmination of the film, plays the Bach double cantata on stage of Carnegie Hall with Isaac Perlman and Isaac Stern. Merrill pulled it off in five months of intensive training. She was playing uh, on the stage, going through rehearsal, and I, I looked over and saw Isaac Stern and, and Isaac Perlman's jaws drop. And one said to the other, I can't believe she, the fingering is perfect, the form is perfect, she's she's doing it. And indeed she does. So, you know, when you're working with a talent of that uh, and a will of that stature, you just sort of stand back and let it do uh, what it does. What you become in many ways is a, a suggester or an impartial observer, you know, or a suggest. You know, I, I mean, certainly I feel like I directed her, but at the same time, much, many of the ideas came from her as well. And uh, we sort of went back and forth, you know. It was uh, everything was uh, not everything was a discussion in the bad sense, but it was very much of a collaboration. When working on a an adult film, a film for adults, a film where you're not trying to shock your audience, where you're trying to create that kind of depth, what what problems did you encounter? Did you find yourself going back to the tried and true methods, or or did you move on and come up with new ideas? That way? I mean, when you're doing. A good genre film, you're still dealing, you know, even Scream has a very complicated backstory and deals a lot with family and the interaction between kids and parents and so forth. So, you know, that, that part of the film is not formulaic and, you know, you're not making people jump out of your sort of establishing characters. So, you know, having done that quite a bit and also done, you know, a lot of the Twilight zones that were more character driven, it's just working with actors and, and, you know, breaking down the script and talking about it intelligently in a way that uh, you can agree upon a sort of course of action. There's many things about this film that are, could be called, if it were not done just right, sentimental or soapy because she's dealing with kids and, you know, there's kids in very trying circumstances, uh, you know, from minority backgrounds, poor parents and everything. Found that there, the, the matter of taste was the trickiest thing of how much music do you put into a scene, for instance, that might bring tears to an audience's eyes, or do you just take the music out? Whereas in a genre film, you load music into everything because it helps drive the engine. With a Meryl Streep doing, in a sense, her whole face is a score, we, we went back and took out huge amounts of beautiful music that just was not necessary. That sort of thing is much more subtle, and uh, that was a learning process that was really fascinating to me. No one has mentioned uh, Aidan Quinn, who is Streep's co-star. What about working with him? Well, he's another great actor and uh, very, very um, underplayed. You know, he, it's very interesting to watch him work because it seems almost offhand. But when it's cut together, it has this wonderful veracity to it that uh, you say, oh, yeah, that's the way people really talk. And uh, it's, it's a thankless role in a way. He plays uh, a man who got her first job through an association uh, he had with the principal of the high school where she eventually teaches. But... And they become lovers, but uh, he is a man who just philosophically doesn't believe in marriage. And so at a certain point, she leaves him behind. And it's all because this actual woman that this film is based on, this is exactly how her life has been lived. She's now single, and she you know, didn't find the man of her dreams, and 
her life has sort of been realized through her teaching. So uh, Aiden had that you know, role of playing a man that eventually is discarded and didn't live up to the standards of the central character. So it's, uh, it's tricky. I, I think he was very brave to play it because it's a complex character, very smart character. But on the other hand, it's not the, the, the knight on, on the white horse. The book Fountain Society deals, as you mentioned, with cloning and transplantation. And I, I wonder how much you relied or how much you were influenced by traditional treatment of these themes. I mean, they go all the way, they, they go all the way back to Frankenstein and Mary Shelley. Well, you know, it certainly is one of the great themes of uh, 20th century is how much science influences us and, in a sense, is ahead of all of our other institutions, our usual guidance systems are outstripped by science uh, almost daily. So, you know, it seems like religion, ethics, and morality, all those things are always running to catch up to the new technological developments. And I think since, uh, since Frankenstein, that idea of what man is doing both to man and to the world is, uh, you know, a prevailing theme, very important one. In a sense, though, this is, of course, genre work for a slightly older audience, but it's still a genre work. However, you are able to throw in politics and ideas concerning morality. I'd like you to talk a little about the island that this takes place on, because this is a very real island, and there's a lot of controversy about it. Yeah, I'm just hearing, actually, about the controversy. I knew, uh, doing some research on it, that over the years there had been protests about the bomb range. This is Viaques, uh, I believe it's pronounced. It's um, just a few miles off the coast of Puerto Rico. And it is uh, the location of an extension of the Roosevelt Roads Naval Station that's on Puerto Rico. Something like 40,000 acres, very, very big. Takes over the whole center part of the island, I believe, or the two ends, one or the other. Ever since I've had this idea, I had an idea of it taking place partially on this sort of an island. And I wrote the first draft, um, and I sort of needed to know, you know, what islands could I say it was near without, you know, putting my foot in my mouth. So I had my research assistant do a study of the Caribbean area, and he came back at the end of the day. He said, you won't believe this, but there's an island called Viaquis where this very thing is going on. And it turns out uh, there's major installations from all the services on this island that are are doing uh, secret projects. The local residents, of course, have been very, very unhappy about this of late. Yes, well, apparently uh, one of the most um, high-profile activities on the island is that the Navy Air Force has a... um, a bomb range there where they do strafing practice and drop napalm and drop all these very exotic bombs. And when you go into the chemical structure of the explosives that are used in the bombs, they release all sorts of sort of a wild chemical cocktail into the air. So uh, a lot of the controversy has to do with the environmental damage both to the to the animals, to the plants, but uh, also to the people that are in the outfall of the, uh, you know, the plumes of uh, debris and, and explosives that are put into the air after each bomb is, goes off. The themes of the book, as Dick pointed out, go back to Frankenstein and the morality of science going amok. I wonder how much of that was in the back of your head when you were working on this, when you were thinking about this over the years, and it doesn't seem to play a role in your films because your films are mostly fantasy. Or am I missing something? Mm. Well, no, the, the films are much more primally oriented, uh, and so they deal with the presence of violence and evil, if you will, in, in the human mind and human actions. And, and those things tend to predate uh, even technology. Uh, Jane Goodall finding out that chimpanzees went on honey parties where they killed other chimpanzees, you know, 
it seems to be buried pretty deeply in our species. So that sort of uh, you know, film is very much about that sort of thing, and I really didn't go too much into the technology. I think in Shocker, maybe I went into somebody entering sort of the electromagnetic stream, but still as something that's been around forever. You know, one of my hobbies is this whole area of science, and it is not something that's quite so easy to bring to a, a young audience. So uh, it sort of, to me, cried out for a book uh, that was aimed towards a more mature audience. I was also very interested in the whole theme of uh, America's obsession with staying young and extending life, which uh, to me is the more interesting part of the book once you get past all the sort of scientific trickery of, uh, you know, extending a man's life through a, a transplant of his own brain, of his brain into his own clone, the ramifications of that with his his own marriage of 50 years and uh, when he is young, how he feels, in a sense, disjointed from the culture of the people that he is now among us, you know, the other 35-year-olds. He doesn't really understand their culture the way he feels uh, comfortable in his own which is of a 70-year-old person. So even though he's in a young body, he still has this kind of mind of an older person. Not that he's stodgy, but all of his reference points and everything are from another era. So it's not quite the uh, Edenic thing that he thought it would be. I noticed there was a, an acknowledgement in the book to Michael Corda, a wonderful, wonderful man, and one of the major, major editors of our generation. Talk about working with him. Michael came in about halfway through the project, and uh, I think it was at the point that they felt like they had a book that was very, very interesting to them. And he came out as actually his idea for the cover of the book, which is this uh, rather remarkable hologramic uh, image of a man in five stages of being young and aging. He was very, very down to earth. He has a huge history, as you know, in film as well as in, in literature. He talked very frankly about, uh, you know, what characters he thought needed to be developed and the morality of uh, Peter Jans, the central character's uh, actions, not only in participating in this essential murder of a clone in order to get the body, but, uh, you know, experimentation on animals and uh, the use of weapon systems and the history of uh, military use. And so he was, he's quite erudite and, and uh, you know, broad, broad-reaching intelligence, uh, I think, informed a lot of the book. It was, it was a great pleasure working with him. We've interviewed several authors, most recently John Ridley, who works in both genres of screenplay and novels, but I'm not sure if we've ever spoken with someone who has virtually exclusively worked with screenplays and then went on to the novel. I'm curious about the difference for you, some of the problems that you encountered working on Fountain Society, as opposed to, say, working on the screenplays for Scream or Nightmare on Elm Street, or or any of your other work? Well, the first thing you feel is a tremendous freedom because one of the essential things about screenplays is they are so compact. They really cannot be longer than 110 pages. Usually 120 is considered pretty long. When you write a novel, you have no such restrictions on you, so you have this marvelous ability to, to expand as much as you need. Hotel's on fire right now. The flames are licking past our window. <laughs> there must be something pretty major going on because it was the last interview they went by in troop too. Uh, yeah, we, we passed several we... going the other way as we were coming yeah. up. So, you know, writing a novel, the first thing you realize as a screenwriter that you, you can expand. You don't have any budgetary restrictions. If you want to, you know, have a scene in a two-jet airplanes, you don't have to worry about what the rental cost is per hour or how you get the airspace or all that sort of thing. 
this uh, novel is set in, uh, I think, five countries. You know, uses state-of-the-art facilities and white sands, all of things which I have no idea how we're going to do when we finally face the problem of actually making the movie that's going to come out of it now. That's what you realize initially, and that you can go into people's minds. You can go into interior spaces very, very easily. What's most difficult, I think, for a film writer is that you have to supply... In a sense, you have to be the wardrobe department, you have to be the special effects, you have to describe every single thing. At least this is what Michael was after me about a lot, that uh, you know, you cannot you know, hope for the reader's mind to fill in nearly as much as uh, you thought. When you write a screenplay, you always know there'll be a host of things that you'll fill in later in discussions with the costumer or with the uh, art director and so forth, and you don't put it into the script. One of the other problems that I see is that in a film plot holes, unless they're so huge that everyone jumps in and falls in, plot holes can kind of be smoothed over. You can't get away with that in a book. No, that's true. I mean, it's, uh, you know, especially a book like this, it's, um, there's a great amount of kind of plotting involved in just the time and space of who's where when, but also, uh, you know, the scientific uh, matters that had to be thoroughly researched. I mean, I thought I was pretty well-versed in science, but when I started writing about all this stuff, I found myself reading just stacks of books and, and realizing how ignorant I was of uh, all the permutations of cloning and genetics uh, in the 20th century. Mid-writing, you're, you're suddenly going to school, you know. So uh, that, that part is, uh, is something you can't fake, you know. One aspect of the story is so-called body memory. That is, if a brain could be transplanted into another body, does the memory of the body donor, so to speak, have an effect on the brain, on the new occupant of that body? Talk about your research and what you learned about that. Well, the great anecdote with the body memory comes from this woman um, in the Midwest who had a, a faulty heart valve and needed a transplant desperately, and she finally was called in by her doctor. A heart was available, and uh, she was you know, put on the table and received this this new heart, you know, woke up and recovered very, very well and had enormous energy, and the doctor told her it was from a young person and so forth. The first time she was able to go out after her recovery, she asked her husband if they could go have a beer and a pizza, and he, he was just flummoxed because this woman was virtually a teetotaler and a, a vegetarian and, you know, never had expressed any desire for such things in her diet. And she had this very strong desire that kept cropping up, and several other things that she was attracted to and found interest in that she hadn't before, sports. She went back to the doctor and asked for the identity of the person, and he wouldn't give it to her, but she did research and found out, because she lived in a relatively small town, that there was only one fatal accident that night, and it was a motorcycle accident. a young man, and she went to his family and talked to them, and uh, she found out that the young man was on his way to get a a beer and a pizza on his motorcycle and that he did it every Thursday night. It was just part of, he went to go there with his buddies and have a beer and a pizza. And she became immensely close to the family and found that a lot of the things that she had been feeling urges to do or experience for the first time were things that he liked to do all the time. Uh, and I talked about that to Simon Schuster when I was pitching the idea and they said, oh, we have a book. We have a book that's in the, in the, in the pipeline about body memory and cellular memory. And so, you know, a whole new theory. So it, it seems that there is a, a, a body of theory that parts of the memory, especially memories associated with you know, muscular experiences, sensual experiences, are stored in parts of the body. They don't know exactly how or where, 
but it's exterior of the brain so that uh, you know the body has its own memory so I had a lot of fun in the book exploring this idea that this man has his brain put into a body that he assumes is his because it's his clone but really it belonged to somebody else and it has all sorts of associations and memories that start cropping up in dreams and very much affect the events of the novel. What about the idea of the clone having memories of the person they've been cloned? Because that happens in the book as well, more than once. It was sort of going with the idea that it would go back and forth across some sort of invisible cellular membrane, that uh, sort of the clone would have a perception in a sense of the parent entity, whatever you want to call that. And in some ways, there's not a terminology worked out for some of these things. But uh, there's a lot of speculations about treating the whole subject as if, you know, in the next 20 years it'll be around and uh, they're already trying to sort of figure out the ground rules for what it'll, the relationship between clones and their hosts, if you will, I don't know what you would call it, uh, their originators would be. And, you know, the talk of like clone envy and clone patricide in a way that the clone would always realize that the older version of himself would be kind of predatory in a sense because he... The older version would always be looking at the younger version as something that it could cannibalize in order to, you know, get a spare heart or whatever. So there would be a tendency of the younger clones to never feel free unless the older clone <laughs> were dead. So there's all sorts of, I'm uh, sorry, also all sorts of interesting uh, permutations on the whole theme of uh, clonology, if you will, that uh, I think will be explored in in the near future in novels and movies. Dick Lupoff. Another very interesting item in Fountain Society is this notion of a kind of body glue uh, that might be used in, in uh, repairing spinal cord injuries. It, re it made me think uh, for a moment of uh, Richard Matheson's novel, uh, I Am Legend, in which uh, vampires' ability to heal their wounds comes from a kind of body glue. If you would tell us a little bit about the research you did in this area, how real is this and how close is medicine to having such such a substance? Well, a lot of this research uh, came to the forefront with Christopher Reeves' accident and uh, the tragedy involved in that, and his very, very positive aspect that this must be taken as a problem that can be solved. Uh, they've already um, managed to sever the spinal cords and reattach spinal cords of uh, rabbits, which is a pretty high life form as opposed to tadpoles and things like that. Uh, the problem with the human spine is, uh, you know, for instance, if uh, one is unfortunate enough to have one's hand cut off in an industrial accident or whatever, it can be sewn back on and the nerves can be reconnected and they'll begin to transmit impulses across the, the breach again. With the human spine, ironically, what it does, if it's injured beyond a certain point, it will begin to destroy itself even more. Speculation being that it's kind of an evolutionary uh, safeguard that if an individual is part of the, you know, human crowd is injured, then it'd be too much for the kind of clan to take care of. So with Reeves, they, it was one of the first uh, high-profile injuries where they knew of this process, and there is now an ant antidote which stops this process. So the injury is the injury, and it doesn't go beyond that. But they're also working on what's called a DNA glue, which the idea of a spinal cord it has so many millions of dendrites and connections across you know, the cut that there's no way a surgeon could ever reconnect those. But if, if a DNA paste were contrived, and they're working on it, that will, in a sense, read the blueprint of the DNA on both sides and make the connections according to uh, almost a subatomic level, that it could do what, uh, you know, the, sort of the way a cut heals itself on the skin. No surgery could really do all that sort of cellular intermeshing again, but the body is able to do it. So that they're, they're working on that, and that is one of their hopes uh, 
for this DNA glue that will help all, uh, many different kinds of severe wounds. Wes Craven, now you've completed these. Uh, obviously, we don't know what your future holds in terms of more, quote, serious films. And I'm, from what you're saying, I'm putting big quotes around them, around the, that word serious. But how about your writing? Are you planning on working on another novel? Yeah, I have an idea for another novel. It's it's, it's arduous. I mean, I, I, I'm sure if you speak to any real, quote, quote, I mean, as opposed to me who sort of foisted himself in the public in a way, uh, they'll all say it's it's very, very wearing. And um, to do that and to be doing films in the same kind of span of time, pretty challenging, to put it mildly. So I have to figure out a way to, uh, you know, find the time to do it uh, in a way that doesn't kill you. But I definitely wanted to have this story out. It's, you know, a story that people have been urging me to put down on paper for a long time, and I finally felt like it's time to do it. And I, I think I will write again. I just have to figure out how to schedule that. But there are some guys that do it. Clive Barker does it. He does films and writing. And Stephen King certainly is able to put out an immense amount of material and participate in films, too. So I just have to uh, figure out how to tweak the schedule. After this interview, Wes Craven continued to direct, including two more Scream films. His last film was Scream 4. His only other venture into printed matter was the comic book series Coming of Rage, which was published in book form in 2015. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>